0: I spoke on James chapter 1 about nine years ago when I did a series on James. It feels like it wasn't that long ago to me. So I actually asked Sue yesterday, when last did I share this text or preach on this text? And she couldn't remember a time. And then I searched the, the web where we post some of our messages and I couldn't find it. And I looked in my notes where I store my, my sermons and I couldn't find this text except for in 2014. So, if I've preached it more recently, because it feels like I have, you'll have to forgive me because I was trying to avoid preaching it if it was unnecessary, but I felt like God put it on my heart to preach from James 1 verse 1 to 4, and um, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. Sometimes it's in those times where things are going the hardest in our lives. That we get that momentary feeling that god must have in some way abandoned us or withdrawn from us or removed himself from us and you could hit a a, a bump in the road whether it's uh, some kind of a tragedy that strikes or maybe something that's not going according to plan or you suddenly find yourself in a place where things aren't the way you hoped they would be and you don't understand why is this so odd why am i facing such a difficult thing and where is god and It's in those moments like when you really need God that sometimes it's like He's not around where it can feel like it. I have uh, those moments where I would love God to give me a clear sign of what direction He wants me to take in life or what choice to make in a big decision. And sometimes you pray and pray and then it's like you don't get an answer. It's like Christianity, you know, people propose it to you as like this really great working system but it's actually messy and real life is complicated and even though the veil has been torn and the the division between us and the father has been taken away by Jesus we're not yet in heaven we're not standing in glory seeing God face to face but we we're seeing through a glass darkly we're we're battling to communicate clearly And then when you're in a tough time in life, it makes this whole thing particularly vulnerable to the enemy, the devil coming and saying, you see, God is actually not there for you. You see, right when you need God the most, he seems to be far away from you. Well, that's part of God's plan, actually. It's it's of his nature to try to teach us to believe in him irrespective of what we see with our eyes. That's why Jesus could say to Thomas who wanted to put his, his fingers in Jesus' wounds and see it's really Jesus who's risen from the dead. And Jesus said it's actually, you know, more blessed. Blessed are those who believe who didn't see. And God wants us to know him that well that we trust him irrespective of the circumstances around us. And so that's a kind of a stronger position to be in when you know, even though you can't feel God's presence, that He hasn't left you. And His Word says He would never leave us or forsake us. So that's a statement of fact. It's given to us in His Word that God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And there is that provision made in what happened to Jesus. What I mean is... Because of Jesus, we can live in that promise that God would never leave us or forsake us. See, Jesus hung on the cross, and as He was dying, the Father turned His face away, because the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, everything that would cause God to want to leave us, to want to forsake us, everything that would give God a justified reason for abandoning us, was put on Jesus. And then Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he carried that for us so that we would never have to experience it. And so now God can say righteously, justly, I will never leave you or forsake you. Your sins can't even separate you from God anymore because your sins have been put on Jesus. And so God has given us a promise that he can actually keep because of Jesus. He fulfills that promise to us in Jesus. And yet, in those moments when life is tough, we don't always feel like God is there. So we start asking the question, has God left me? Where is God? Why didn't He answer this prayer? So my one task this morning is to explain four verses in James at the beginning of the book of James. So let's start at James 1 verse 1. James A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. This guy James is writing to a bunch of believers. Mostly they come from a Jewish background. So he calls them the 12 tribes in dispersion. Who is this James? Well, there are four possible Jameses it could have been. Maybe at least four possible Jameses could have written this letter. But by far the most likely is that it was James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote it. The second strongest contender would have been James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John. But that James, the son of Zebedee, he was actually one of the first martyrs, the first disciple to be killed for his faith. And he was killed so early on that actually there probably weren't 12 tribes in Diaspora Quantity of Jewish Christians around. In other words, the way James addresses this letter and it's written later than James the son of Zebedee died. So we assume it's actually James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter. Now, it starts with a question in my mind, why would I even care about who wrote it? Well, I want to know, how's this guy positioned? Who is he? What does he see? Why would he be writing this? And actually, if I understand that this is the brother of Jesus, but I look a little bit at how he introduces himself, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we need to know about Jesus' family is they were doubters. They were skeptics. They were when he was doing miracles they were calling him to take him home as if he'd lost his mind. He was in that one venue doing something and then they said, Jesus, your mother and brothers are at the door to fetch you meaning it's like the scene in the movie where the men in white coats arrive to take away the guy who lost his mind. It's like they want to take you home because people think you're crazy with the things you're saying, the things you're claiming to be about yourself. You're saying you're the son of God, you're the Messiah, whatever. You your family's here," he says. "Who are my mother and my brothers? But those who do the will of my father, who's in heaven." He sounds even more like a crackpot in that moment. And so, you see, they were there because they didn't believe Jesus' mother and brothers at that time. Certainly, the rest of the family—they were like not really sure about Jesus. However, what did happen is these guys who were closest to Jesus. Had their entire view of Jesus changed after the resurrection, yes. in other words, they, they were, this James wasn't his like follower while he was on earth, but after the resurrection, they saw, wait a minute, everything he said was true, and they became absolutely convinced believers. In fact, James Jesus' brother became one of the key figures in the church at Jerusalem, so converted. Because of seeing his own brother alive after being crucified and so now what you see is a guy who could have said i'm james brother of jesus he doesn't relate to jesus as a earthly brother he says actually i'm a servant of god and of the lord jesus christ i'm a servant of this guy i knew on earth as my brother but now i know him as the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is important because if you're going to walk in right relationship with God, you have to see who Jesus really is. You can't stay like kind of wavering, is he just a man, is he just a prophet, or is he just somebody like somebody else or could, you know, no, he is the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm his servant. And it's an incredible concept of humility that the brother would actually change His relationship to his brother to view him as his Lord Mm. and that I think tells us a bit about James he's a serious man he was doubting but now he believes and nothing will change that because he has seen Jesus the risen Savior and so he considers himself a servant humbled and at the mercy of God he'd seen Jesus suffer so he was aware of his brother on the cross, but then he saw the resurrection. He knew this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So he had suffered, he had seen others suffer, and he comes from a position where he understands that we are not exempt from suffering. Not even the Son of God was exempt from suffering. So he writes with this directness. He's saying we need to become mature. If there was one theme for the whole of this letter, the letter of James, it is a call towards spiritual maturity. James puts big demands on his hearers. It's not intro to Christianity 101, let me take you by the hand. It's like, no, this is, show me the works that should accompany your faith, otherwise your faith is dead. It's like, it's blunt, it's confrontational. So he's a humble guy, but he's a serious guy. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's the stage where the church had reached mostly Jewish people. And he says, greetings. He's not like Paul. Just one word, greetings. He doesn't miss his words. He doesn't waffle. That's important again, because it means within just a few sentences, he's going to say something that you have to say. This guy's not going to give you a whole book to understand this one verse. We have to dig into this verse. He's just going to say it. So here he says it in James 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There, he just states it. No preparation, no long intros to this book. He just addresses the people, says greetings, and then he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Of various kinds that is very to the point and it comes with a little motivation now afterwards he goes on and says this in verse 3 and verse 4 for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing So there's the motivation, there's something to be gained, because if you counted all joy when you meet various kinds of trials, you would know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, don't try and wriggle out of the trial, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he starts by saying, count it all joy. We need to understand what he means by that. If someone comes to you in agony and they say, no man, you should enjoy that. He's not saying that. He's not saying you should enjoy the suffering. He's, he's putting it another way. He's saying count, which means when you're an accountant and you measure the value of something, you do your bookkeeping and you're working out how much do I owe or how much did I you know, earn. It's like you, you're counting it up. So he says, you must measure Your trial as something of worth. Count it as something positive when you face various kinds of trials. So that's the first understanding. Is When he says count it all joy, he's actually not saying you should be enjoying the pain. He's just saying the pain has a value. The pain has a positive value. The trial you go through has some greater good behind it. So count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds when you meet trials not if he puts it quite simply that it's coming and you meet it it's the same way that you meet a bandit on the road you weren't looking for it you don't go looking for a trial you don't go looking for suffering you don't go you don't like this is going to be joyful so i'll go find trouble for myself no <laughs> You're going about your life trying to stay out of trouble and then when you meet it you work out, hold on, something else is going on here, it's not just about this trial. And so when, not if you meet it, but it's trials of various kinds. He, he wants you to know that trials come, you don't look for them, they find you, they meet you. Around the bend of the road, you come around the corner and suddenly there's the bandit waiting to ambush you. That's how trouble usually comes into our lives. Interestingly enough, some of us make trouble for ourselves. Peter addresses this. Peter says, none of you should be suffering for being kind of liars or thieves or murderers. What he's really saying is, don't sin because if you sin, you're going to bring trouble on yourself. So that's not a noble kind of suffering. If you're suffering because you sinned, that's your fault. We're not talking about that kind of trial or suffering. We're talking about the trial that you weren't looking for. So you were happily going about your day and then suddenly things went wrong. And um, James is talking about that kind of trial. And he says there are various kinds. There's actually external trials that come to our lives that are circumstantial someone dies and it's tragic and in the tragedy the tragedy isn't the trial but there's a trial that takes place how you respond to it there's circumstantial external trials but then there's also internal trials that we face where we wrestle against temptation so temptation is typically the inner trial and circumstances are the outer trial and um We know he has both these kinds of trials in mind, because just a few verses later, beyond the passage that we're looking at this morning, he says in James 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So, I I looked at verse 12 in the light of the first four verses. And it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, I understand I already have eternal life, but crowns or the medals and the trophies only come at the end of the race. And what James is actually saying then is that there is a crown or a reward for those who have stood the test and remained steadfast. You haven't wavered. You haven't crumbled and denied your faith or turned your back on God or hated God or got angry with Him. But you've stood firm in your faith. For how long? man who remains steadfast when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life oh dear that's a little bit of a challenge because that actually tells you that this phase of testing is your whole life it's like only after this life do you cease to be tempted so if you had to wonder how long do you have to resist temptation just while you're in the body (laughs) just for maybe a hundred years. It's like, okay, now I'm really thinking it would be better to go and be with Jesus sooner, not later. Because then the weight is relieved, the pressure is over. So when you've stood the test, you'll receive the crown of life. So life is gonna involve trials of various kinds and they're gonna keep on coming at you your whole life. Those of you who are hoping to create the perfect utopian dream of a life with no trouble, You don't understand. Jesus said in this life you will have trouble. So clearly James is thinking whole life here. The whole life is a test. But it's also an opportunity. Because there's a crown. There's a trophy. There's a reward. Having stood the test, you receive... I don't know how it's going to work, but it's it has gotta be something cool. I remember when I was in school and you saw the kids go up on stage and they got those certificates and trophies and everything, and that's what you want. You wanna be that guy getting the trophy. Now, most of us in school, we didn't get as many trophies as we wanted. And so these poor, soft, modern teachers, they give like a, someone a prize just for competing. It's not real life. You get the prize for winning, okay? And when you face a trial, you can win or lose. What we're talking about is serious. You don't just get this crown automatically. There's a reward God will give you for enduring. There's a reward God will give you for how you handle suffering. There's a reward that you will receive because you stood firm in your faith. So think about it like that. And it's, it's also not because of God that we're tempted. Remember... The cause of the evil, you could say this isn't fair, but the cause of the evil dynamics that are at play is the devil's wickedness and our weakness, our sinful desires. Most of the time when it's temptation, our flesh desires something that is bad for us. That's just how it works. So when you want to do that thing, uh, it's actually probably bad for you because the flesh craves, the flesh, the sinful nature craves sin and sin is always destructive. So we will all experience temptation for as long as we are in this body. And a trial is like a test. What is a trial? When we speak about a different kind of trial, it's actually a similar kind of trial, a court case. You, you go to trial, it's when you go to stand in front of the court and there's an investigation and discussion. What is the whole purpose of the trial? To establish the truth. We have to say that here in our context because that's not always the purpose of the trial. I guess in Madagascar sometimes the purpose of the trial is to see who pays for the, you know, the verdict. That's me being cynical. Um, But actually a true trial has a goal of establishing what is true. And so what is coming to our lives in the form of a trial is to test us to see if our faith is genuine. Genuine faith is like a solid foundation for your life. And the trial comes to show you that your faith is real. And when you see that your faith is real, then you think, I'm standing firm. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm okay because God is on His throne. I'll get through this because God has not left me or forsaken me. I can't see wood for trees in this season, but I know God sees everything and He's with me. It's like I'm afraid except I can have courage because God is faithful. And this is what the testing does, it proves your faith to be genuine and then you don't shake anymore, you're steadfast. There are scriptures that tell us God is going to shake everything that can be shaken. Now that happens institutionally and and in biblical prophecy it's like end times eschatological catastrophes. God shakes nations, He shakes economies, He shakes governments. But He also comes to our lives as individuals and He shakes him too. And He says, let's see what holds up. And when you've been through that kind of shaking and you see that you hold up, do you know how much stronger you feel? Well, let me tell you, I know because I've gone through some trials and when I've come out the other side and I still believe and I know God is true and He's never abandoned me and He's never failed me every thing i went through he's redeemed and made good use of in my life then i say wow i am much stronger than i ever thought i was because he is much greater than i ever realized so i'm securing him in a way that i never realized i was because i've been tested because i've come through a trial so this is also why the steadfastness has something to produce and the trial produces steadfastness Steadfastness ultimately makes us lacking in nothing. So in the verses we're considering, James is speaking about trials in a broad sense. In verse 2 he says you meet various kinds of trials. And our faith must be strong enough to endure, to survive, to remain, to stand firm through all kinds of trials. For example, having too little When you're poor that can be a test having too much that can be a test that you could pass or fail sickness could be a test health could be a test how could health be a test well i mean if you're really super healthy and you think you're awesome then maybe you think you you know look how cool i look i've been to the gym i've made myself so um buff Then now, you know, I can start flirting with the co-workers and then I have an affair. (laughs) Failed the test. See what I mean? Health could be a test. Riches could be a test. You could have so much money and God actually expects you to do something with it, but you do something else with it. Failed the test. So having too little, having too much in sickness, in health sorry, that's do you get that? It's like distinctly like marriage (laughs) vows. for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health. What's actually happening here is a lot like marriage vows. You're saying to God, I will trust you and I will not waver in my faith. I will be steadfast no matter how life goes with you. When I became a believer, it's like I got married to God. Well, I entered into covenant with Him. Let's use that expression. I came into a covenant with God, and I come into this covenant, and some of us come in with wrong expectations. We think, now that I'm walking with God, life is all going to be rosy. He's just going to deliver me from troubles. He's just going to make my life better. He's just going to make everything plain sailing, and then it isn't like that. But because I entered into this covenant with God, I'm actually saying, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, I'm walking with you. And I'm going to believe in you as my husband, as my maker, as my God. So in tragedy and betrayal and failure and disappointment and offense and mistreatment, in heartbreak and loss, in unanswered prayers as well as rapid growth and success and blessing, trials of various kinds, we should count it all joy because we know that testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So what we're saying is there's a long-term benefit. And then he goes on, James says, because you know. So this was the verse 3, I think. Let me go back there. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So he's saying there's, there's something that you've experienced, that you understand that in this trial, God is at work in you and through the circumstances around you. And steadfastness is being produced. Steadfastness is that sense that nothing can shake me. That's being built into your life through the trial. I was thinking, you know, what can really shake me? I don't want to be easily blown over by life circumstances. So what could really shake me? What are my fears? Having no money, not being able to put my kids in university, going to jail, I don't know, maybe that's your fear, it depends how much of a criminal you are, I guess. But I thought about those those disciples who went to prison, like, and then they sat there and they sang hymns. And what could put you in a position to be happy in jail? It's because you know Jesus is there with you. Because you know God is for you. Because He is enough, that with Him you have everything and you need nothing. And even if they kill you, you're going straight to be with Him. What an unassailable position. If people, if you've experienced the worst and it hasn't broken you, then you know nothing can break you. And that's the kind of steadfastness that we need to have in our lives. And I've seen this grow in people's lives. I've seen it in others where I admire it and I want it for myself. Like Peter Howard Brown, who was instrumental in sending the family who planted this church. He's, he's had a stroke and he's, he's kind of like, to me, a, 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 a father in the faith. He's a guy who, who's gone ahead of me in the race. He's gone through harder things than I have. And he comments on Facebook readily. He's far too much on social media normally, but he, he comments readily if someone dies, someone that he cares about which people die. And he writes it is well with my soul. He's not talking about himself only, saying, I'm okay with that. He's saying, no, that person now is in a better place too. They've gone to be with Jesus. So for them, everything is cool. And he says for himself, it is well with my soul. Meaning, this isn't breaking my faith in God. I'm standing firm. I know that God is in control. So he uses that phrase, it is well with my soul, because he's always loved hymns. And Pete sings, and when he had his stroke, the first thing that came back was not language, but singing hymns. he It works in a different part of your brain. It's connected to memories, not to normal speech. And so before he could even speak again, he was singing hymns. And It Is Well With My Soul is one of those hymns that I feel like, you know, we should all understand the hymn. And so he has a quick lesson on that hymn. I've given it before in the church, but maybe you weren't here then. so. This is me going back in history again and giving you a lesson on this hymn. Thanks to Wikipedia for this information. This hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written after traumatic events in Spafford's life. Spafford is the guy who wrote it. The first traumatic event was the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, which ruined him financially. He had been a successful lawyer and had invested significantly in property in the area of Chicago that was extremely damaged by the Great Fire. His business interests were further hit by the economic downturn of 1873, at which time he had planned to travel to England with his family on the SS, some or other French name that I can't say in French because I can't speak French, that so he was going to go on a ship to England to help with D.L. Moody's upcoming evangelistic campaigns. And he was almost financially broke. He'd gone through ruin because of the Chicago fire. And so in a light change of plans, he sent the family ahead while he was delayed on business concerning zoning problems following the great Chicago fire. So he's dealing with one set of problems. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank rapidly after a collision with a sea vessel they named that one and it's a Scottish lake name, which I can't say because I don't speak Scottish. <laughs> and all four of Spafford's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him the now famous telegram, saved alone, dot, dot, dot. So she basically said she alone survived, the rest of the family wiped out. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these words as his ship passed near where his daughters had died. And here are the original lyrics When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. I'll read the next verse. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, O the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And you would sing, it is well with my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. In other words, it's just Jesus I want. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. So he says, I, whether I live or die, the whisper of peace for my soul comes from Jesus. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O Trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, a song in the night, O my soul. Those are the original words that he wrote. When I understand that a guy could lose his business, be still dealing with the repercussions send his family on a ship and lose all his children and only get on another ship go right by where his daughters died and start writing a hymn like this that it is well with my soul then i understand somebody who has walked in the fulfillment what james is asking us to do he's able to face a trial able to go through the worst of it and say it is well with my soul this will not destroy me this does not take away my faith this is just one thing Jesus is everything now the thing about what James writes as well is there is no talk of avoiding it or minimizing it, the trial. He never suggests that you could somehow escape the trial. He never suggests that you could make the trial easier. And I just want that to sink in for a moment. That sometimes when we hit a trial, we think, surely we can get this over with, or surely we can escape it. It can just go away quicker. But there's no talk of escaping the trial or minimizing the trial. And that's why he gets actually to verse 4, I think it was. Go all the way back. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. So you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now let steadfastness have its full effect. That word let carries within its nature the idea that you surrender to the processes of God. Surrender to the processes of God. In other words, when that trial comes, it's not necessarily going to suddenly get easier. It's not necessarily suddenly going to go away. You have to go through it. You have to pass through it. And you have to let it have its effect on you in order for it to have its effect on you. And its effect ultimately is going to be a good effect. This is where I'm heading. I'm nearly there now. See, consider how trials make you, in the moment, feel distinctly like you're in need of something. You're suffering, you need a deliverance, you need a breakthrough, you need an answer to your prayer, you need a change of your circumstances. So the immediate feeling of the trial is that you need something, that you're lacking something. And yet, James says, when steadfastness has its full effect, you are lacking in nothing. You are lacking in nothing. I lost my dad when I was only like 20 something years old. And God worked in my life to the point that where I stand now, I know that I'm lacking in nothing. I miss him. I feel like I was kind of robbed of having a dad in some way, but I know my life has not lacked anything. You might have lost a marriage. You might have lost a business. But years later, when you look at how God led you, you'll say, I'm lacking in nothing. That's... that's You know, you you lose in the tragedy or trial, even a mistake you make, sometimes you think everything is lost. But when you look back, you realize you're lacking in nothing. That's what the strength is about. It's like in Jesus, I'm complete. I'm whole. There's not a big gaping wound left in my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul I've healed I've recovered and I've seen more of the goodness of God so Jesus put it this way I've said these things to you that in me you have may have peace where you're gonna have peace in Jesus not in your job necessarily not in your parenting skill not in your marriage all the time hopefully some of the time <laughs> peace In me you have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus said. Paul also writes about it, he writes about it this way in Romans chapter 5 verse 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, he has, who has been given to us. Later Paul explains that God is at work in our circumstances when he writes in Romans 8 verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, it says in verse 29 of Romans 8, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. There is a greater goal. Right after Paul writes about all things working for good, meaning even the things that we suffer, the the trials, are being worked out for good. Because there's a purpose that God wants in our lives. He wants us to be conformed to the image of His Son So when you're in a trial The reason you can count it as joy is because the trial is going to produce something in you It's going to result in your faith becoming stronger and your character becoming more Christ-like That is if the process is followed through correctly if you don't react, rebel, reject the trial, the type of character that is developed, Romans 5 speaks about this suffering producing character. It's not just good character. You don't want to just become a good person, like, okay, he's trustworthy, he's learned to be responsible. It's not that, it's Christ like character. There's character that God wants to produce in in us, and there's a reason for God wanting you to have Christ-like character. He doesn't want you to be a good person. He wants you to be a ready person, ready to belong in heaven. He's preparing you for glory. So, actually, all of this that I'm talking about, when you go through some trial and God is not taking you out of it, it's because He's going to let it prepare you for glory. He's going to use it to strengthen your faith and He's going to change your character to become more Christ-like, more compatible with heaven. So, don't believe God has abandoned you. It's quite the opposite. Don't believe God is being unloving to you. It's actually the opposite. See, we might ask, why would a loving God let us go through such awful things? And I'll tell you why. It's because He's stripping you of love for this world and preparing you for eternity. He's saying, you are like this, but I'm going to make you even stronger and even more ready for heaven. That's the purpose of these trials. And so when a trial comes into your life, you can say, He's chosen me for glory. He has predestined me to be conformed to the image of His Son. He has planned to break off of me the things of this world. As much pain as that causes me, I will embrace it because I get to be crowned with glory and majesty with Him. Of course, we throw our crowns at His feet. But that doesn't mean there is no crown. God wants to bring us into glory. So the trials are a part of a process called sanctification. Being set apart for God's purposes and fitted for His glory. So sometimes when we're discouraged, you need to look at the things in your life and say, God, what are you doing here? How are you using this to prepare me for glory? How are you going to use this pain to make me ready for heaven? How are you going to purify me, sanctify me and set me apart for your purposes? That's some of the glorious stuff God is doing when we go through trials. So in conclusion, rather than abandoning us, God is actually setting us apart. He is actually preparing us. When life is tough, you can know God is at work in you, on you, through the circumstances, in the middle of the pain. Nothing is meaningless. It all has a purpose. And so James could say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Won't you stand, and I'm going to pray for us, the band can come up.